Um, we're going to start with the first session, the ripple effects of Solvency 2, two years in. Colin's going to take us through that. After that, Idelia, who's on her way down, will chat us through um, managing capital for shareholder value. Um, Colin is the head of life reinsurance for Aon, based in London. Uh, he looks after the EMEA region. Colin has had jobs in almost all areas of the insurance value chain. I think he's had more roles than South Africa has had finance ministers over the last few years. And he's going to start and chat us through the ripple effects of Solvency 2. Would you join me in welcoming Colin to the stage? Right, good morning, everybody. Is this, uh, this mic is working. Um, so, so we're a bit short of time, so we're going to go through the stuff pretty quickly. Um, you'll be glad uh, that this is a foundational session, so I'm going to have lots of graphs up, uh, lots of fa uh, formulas to, to teach you all about Solvency 2, uh, because, of course, you've never heard about Solvency 2 before uh, at these venues. Uh, so, so hopefully we'll keep it a little bit more uh, interesting as, as to what happened. Um, as, um, I need a clicker for this. Um, as, as Mornay said, I'm, I'm living in London at the moment. I get teased in London for having a South African accent, and I get teased in South Africa for having an English accent. Uh, but my accent actually changes uh, because I travel all over Europe, uh, and uh, one day I'm in Spain, one day I'm in Italy, and one day I'm in, in Finland, and I try to say, uh, skull, kipish, cheers, down the hatch in whichever country I am. Uh, so I try to adapt to the, to the local environment. Right. Any ideas on the clicker? Right, as we, as we get uh, going with the technology. Okay, so the, the, the title of this is The Ripple Effects of Solvency 2. And, and the concept is that um, in every country I've been to that, that's put in a Solvency 2-like regime, so that's all 28 countries in the European Union, or 27 and a half if you half count some countries that are trying to get out, um, and you add in Israel, South Africa, uh, and all the other countries that have a Solvency II-like regime, and then their subsidiaries all around the world. So we're doing some business in Singapore where they're trying to do a transaction that is Solvency II uh, compliant. Um, so, so you have this ripple effect of, of all companies around the world slowly being affected by these sort of things. Uh, and we see the same thinking that everybody goes through. Um, and, and that's the sort of progression that I'm going to show you here, is the thinking that we hear from people and the things they try to do and ultimately what the consequence of all this is. Um, so we have these ripple effects. You throw into the pond the Solvency 2 legislation, 10,000 pages uh, that, that you can read. It has every single rule articulated, so you know exactly what to do, more or less, given, give or take a, a regulator. Um, so to, to do the technical parts, for those of you who haven't seen the, the uh, Solvency 2 uh, balance sheet, and just to make sure that we're using consistent terminology, uh, we, we have this balance sheet that's made up of the market value of assets on one side, okay, contentious issue in itself, you talk to the Americans, and they want to use book value and all sorts of other weird and wonderful stuff, uh, but we're going to talk about market value of assets, um, and those things are highly volatile. Okay, point number one. Point number two on the liability side of this balance sheet, uh, we sit with the best estimate liabilities, and I will... I will give you my opinion on how best estimate they really are a little bit later. Uh, but you start off with your best estimate value of liabilities. To that, you add this thing called the risk margin uh, to get the jargon out there, um, similar to the risk adjustment in IFRS 17 that we're all so excited about. Um, the risk margin and the best estimate together are supposed to be what you would pay a willing counterparty to buy your business and to take the risks that you're taking. Um, so that's your technical provisions. And then on top of that, whatever's left over is own funds. Um, 
nice and simple balance sheet. Every single one of those parts has complexity, but let's keep it simple for now. So, so there's the jargon. Uh, within that own funds, you have your solvency capital retirement, you have these SCRs, uh, which we'll talk about, uh, and then the key figure that you have is your solvency ratio. So the own funds divided by uh, the solvency capital retirement. Uh, and you want that to be 170%, 200%, 300%, depending on your, on your uh, business. Uh, I used to work for Swiss Re, uh, Swiss Re, Munich Re, these sort of guys have, have ratios of 300%. Uh, is that good use of capital? That's the image they want to have of being really, really safe. If you have a one in 200 year event, they're still there and they're still ready for the next one in 200 year event. Um, so you can argue about solvency ratios and how much you want to have, but that's the headline figure. Uh, and if you look at the financials of the big companies, they will talk about their solvency ratio, they will talk about their solvency two position, and then they'll typically give you a walk from there to something else, to IFRS typically, uh, maybe they'll talk about how the embedded value compares to the Solvency 2 position, but the Solvency 2 position really is the headline that they, that they look to and more and more manage their business to. And that leads to these effects that I'm going to talk about. So let's start with the SCRs. So the progression we see with clients, the first thing they walk in they do and they say, I've got a really big SCR whichever SCR it might be. Uh, the SCRs are set there, they're supposed to be these things for one in 200 year events. So you walk in and say, right, I've got a big SCR for market risk. Life insurance companies have loads of assets, they have loads of market risk. Of course, they're gonna do something about that. Derivatives, you can put some derivatives in, protect against, against what's gonna happen. Uh, I'm not gonna talk a lot, a lot about market risk, uh, but it is the next generation of where companies are looking to make changes. Uh, so market risk is one aspect. What that means is that if you have a risky asset, you have to hold more capital, so you are uh, incentivized to hold less capital. So we have all these poor insurers around uh, Europe who are trying to guarantee three, four, five percent returns, being ending up being invested in bonds. You know, bonds that are with, with a, a 0 0.5 or a negative 0.5 uh, interest rate uh, in some countries, really difficult to give the return that you're promising your clients, otherwise you have this market risk and you have a cost of capital attached to it. Um, so this is, this is the first part on the market risk side. Um, if we look at some of this, the easier to understand risks, so the life catastrophe risk. In South Africa, it's uh, specified slightly differently, uh, but in EU, insolvency two, it's an extra 1.5 per thousand claims in the year of valuation. Um, so if this, if this creates a lot of capital, what do you do about it? Well, you can pass that risk away to somebody else. This is one of the easier ones. So, Life insurers have typically had some sort of catastrophe cover. Uh, if there's some sort of event, some sort of nuclear explosion, terrorist bomb, uh, in, in the UK, the big issue is terrorism. Uh, so we do modeling of Canary Wharf and, uh, and downtown and uh, the city of center uh, for terrorism risk. Uh, but actually the real risk for that sort of loss of life isn't terrorism, isn't a catastrophe, it's a pandemic. Um, so we invent these reinsurance covers where we find somebody who's going to take that pandemic risk and that catastrophe risk. Uh, so you can reinsure away that risk. Um, the terminology people come up with is say, I want to reinsure away my one in 200 year risk. Well, actually, to reinsure it away, you need to reinsure some of the actual risk. So you're reinsuring away some of the one in 50 year risk or one in 100 year risk or one in 20 year risk. Typically, we would say if, you're, uh, if you figure out what your best estimate loss is, you can reinsure away anything from about 125% of that at a pretty good price. It's, it's cheaper than the cost of capital, uh, so it solves, it solves your problem. Um, so this is an example of one of the simple first generation of solutions. 
I have this life cat stress SCR, I want to get rid of it, I can give it that risk to somebody else. A slightly more complicated one, uh, and one that's even bigger in, in SAM than it is in Solvency 2, is the lapse risk. So you suddenly end up with this massive lapse SCR uh, that you've never had before. Uh, and you can imagine the conversation with your shareholders. Uh, Sorry, Mr. Shareholder, I'm holding a billion for lapse risk. Um, I've never had to hold it before. Shareholder says, well, why? So you say, well, you blame the regulator. He says, okay, but what does it really mean? He says, well, if the present value of the future profits of all my policyholders disappears, then you have no company left, you have no value left. And the shareholder's surprised. You know, so well, I'm, I'm basing the investment on this company in the behavior of all these policyholders. Uh, and the one in 200 year event that's defined is 40% of them leave tomorrow. Uh, or if, you, if a group scheme, 70% of them leave tomorrow. Most people say that is absolutely horrendous. What example is there ever in, in creation of it? Um, and they go down the same thinking to say, well, I want to get rid of that SCR. Um, so we can design a solution to do that. We can reassure it away. We can find another counterparty who's willing to take that risk. But actually, when you go to the regulator to explain this, and you delve into it more, you're talking about risk management, not just reducing an SCR. Uh, and unless you can talk about the risk management properly, so this is the way I manage my persistency risk, this is the type of product I've got, this is the scenario that's gonna cause me this loss, reputational risk, whatever it might be, tax change, all the things that could be. Unless you've been through that thinking, you haven't designed the right problem, the right solution. Um, so walking in and say I want to reduce the SCR is a really naive, basic way to start with a problem. One really has to delve into it much, much further. Uh, and you can go through every single one of the SCRs uh, and talk about it in the same way, but that's really the, the, the order in which people ask us. Market risk, uh, life cat if they have it, and lapse. And then we get onto longevity and health and all the other bits and pieces. Um, so that's, that's the SCR. If we then dial back one from the SCR and you fundamentally underneath have this best estimate liability, uh, now how useful is this number? And it depends how best estimate it is. So having a best estimate liability to start with is a really useful figure to have. Everybody understands it. If the assumptions are best estimate, it's a fantastic starting point. However, if you were actually slightly prudent in setting your assumptions, how best estimate is it? Um, if you had insufficient data to set an assumption, how best esti estimate is it? Um, if there is correlations between some of the bits and pieces that you haven't allowed for, how best estimate is it? But let's say for the moment that a company has done its best job on its best estimate liability. Uh, you have these nice cash flows projected into the future that really are what you think they're going to be. You then discount them. Uh, in the Solvency 2 world, you discount at the, at the IOPA swap curve rates, uh, risk uh, neutral rate, very, very low at the moment, uh, so it, it, it gives you a very large number. Um, in some jurisdictions, when the, some of the early rates are start getting towards negative, you get interesting things happening. Um, but is there really a good value for that set of liabilities? Um, so then we start talking about counterparties. Okay, if you want to sell, if you want to reinsure that portfolio of risks, are they going to take on the risks discounted to IOPA swap curve? Probably not. They're probably going to look at the assets that they're actually holding behind it. Now, in the Solvency 2 world, you have a volatility adjustment that you can, uh, uh, you can add. Quite useful. Uh, a couple of basis points gives you a little bit of a decrease in the best estimate liability. Uh, and in the UK context, the matching adjustment is, is a really big one. 
So the put, those big portfolios of annuity business uh, that are producing billions and billions of pounds of liability, you can add 100 basis, 150 basis points of matching adjustment to this risk-neutral rate, uh, brings down the reserve uh, very, very rapidly. Now, the matching adjustment specifications are very onerous. Uh, you need to be holding uh, appropriate asset liability match, matched uh, assets. Uh, you uh, are holding to, to maturity, which is why you get the benefit. Um, the liabilities have to have a whole bunch of characteristics, like not having new cash flows and a bunch of other things. Uh, so it becomes very onerous. Uh, and this is a very contentious issue at the moment. Uh, the PRA, the regulator in the UK, is saying, you know, I'm not happy with some of the things that you're doing with this matching adjustment. You're getting too racy with this. The impact of this, the, the ripple effects from this, is that it changes the nature of the assets that insurers want to hold. Whatever they were holding before was, cap, was capital or best estimate liability calculation suboptimal. So they've changed what they want to invest in. It's now illiquids, it's now infrastructure spending, uh, it's now equity release mortgages, and, and I won't get into that. Uh, you, you can ask that for in question time. Um, but it means your best estimate liability is this uh, is this number that you have to understand its context before it really helps. Um, from our point of view, it's really useful because if a company wants to do something, we'll ask them for their best estimate cash flows. And from that, you can do everything. Uh, a really, really useful start. Um, the other problem with the best estimate liability is that it's very volatile. So if we look at the interest rates uh, over the time of installation of Solvency II, so this is at the end of 2014. Uh, this is what the swap curve looked like. Uh, you have uh, quite a steep slope in the, early, in the early two years, up to the 2%, and then you have this dripped up to the ultimate forward rate, and we can debate the ultimate forward rate. Uh, that's what it was like 2014, so a year before Solvency 2 took effect. Uh, as Solvency 2 took effect, that's where the curve was. It had, it had changed slightly. There was a slight twist in it. If you had really short-duration liabilities, you'd seen them go down instead of up. Uh, but, it, but on the whole, you'd seen your liabilities go up a little bit. A year later, um, when, or nine months later, when you were getting ready for your first full-year disclosure under Solvency 2, that's where the yield curve was. It had dramatically dropped. Uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a, percent, uh, a percent and a quarter drop in some durations. Massive change in the liabilities over nine months. Um, and everybody was worried that people had solvency ratios. We had a lot of conversations with clients saying, well, my solvency ratio has dropped to 155%. I want it to be 170. Uh, we need to start doing something quite urgently in the last three months of the year. Um, but luckily, unluckily, depending on your point of view, that's where the curve ended up at the, end of, at the end of December. It spiked up. And why did it spike up? Because the US had a general election and Donald Trump got elected. Um, so an external event to, to the EU happens, uh, the world markets change, the IAPA swap curve changes, uh, and suddenly your liabilities bounce around all over the place. So the next ripple effect was, I now have this volatile balance sheet with a volatile solvency ratio. So I no longer want to worry about the SCR so much, I want to worry about this volatility of the solvency ratio. Um, so then we move on to the risk margin. How, are you keeping track of time? We, okay. um, we move on to the risk margin then. So the question here is if you wanted to offload this portfolio of liabilities of risk onto somebody else, how much would they spend? Uh, how much should they pay you? Uh, Solvency 2 theory says they'll give you the best estimate liability, because it's the best estimate, uh, and they'll add on this risk margin. 
Uh, and you can argue about is a 6% cost of capital the right number? Yeah, it's probably good enough. There's lots of research behind it. Um, the key thing in the UK is that longevity is seen as an unhedgeable risk. And therefore, on a longevity, on an annuity portfolio, you have to, have to hold this massive risk margin, this really, really massive risk margin. Um, and that has driven the behavior of companies wanting to reinsure a lot of the risk. They actually want to keep it. The companies like Legal and General and Aviva, who are writing billions and billions of this business, they actually want to keep that risk because they want to make money out of it, uh, but they are incentivized to reinsure it. Um, so the next, next iteration of that was that a whole market grew up in the reinsurance market of taking that risk off the UK insurers. Um, and the dynamic behind the UK market is you have two trillion of pension fund, of DB pension fund assets that are being de-risked into the insurance market. Um, probably do about 30 billion pounds of this this year, uh, but there's two trillion out there. So this is 30 billion pounds a year that's gonna continue forever. Uh, and where's that going to go? When does capacity run out? When do prices harden? Uh, we've had fun with prices changing uh, as, as, as mortality has got worse in the UK. Um, so there's all sorts of dynamics about this market. And the impact of that has been that some of the big UK insurers have said, well, I'm no longer really actually a life insurer. Uh, those of you who've worked in the market know that the UK life insurers reinsure almost 100% of their life risk. They're not holding any life risk. They're not life insurers. Um, they're asset managers, they're whatever else, but now they are longevity insurers. Um, so they're trying to get rid of the risk margin. So that was the next behavior that came along. Is we've worried about SCR. We've looked at how we can make our bell as optimal as possible. Now we want to get rid of this risk margin problem. Um, having got rid of it, then we say, okay, is this really the price that somebody will pay? Uh, and the next dimension comes in there now is the company looks at their, their balance sheet, looks at the risks they're taking, looks at the products that they have, and looks at their legacy portfolios and says, what business am I really in? What do I actually want to do? So a company like Legal and General comes along and says they want to have a capital light model. They don't want to have masses of capital tied up in this business. They want to have a capital light model. So all the behaviors that happen after that are to write business and reinsure the risks so that you hold as little capital as you possibly have to. Um, so this is the next effect. The company then says, right, I want to get rid of a whole bunch of business. Um, in the UK, they have all this with profits business, they have legacy portfolios. Right, we don't want to be in this business in the world, it has too much capital attached to it, let's get rid of it. Reinsure it, sell it, whatever the case may be. So a very active consolidation market in the UK and a, and a consolidation market that's becoming more and more active in Europe. So now even in Germany, where it's most problematic, companies are saying, here's an old portfolio of business, I no longer want it, find a willing, a willing recipient of it. Um, so to the two pictures that I've got there, uh, the one on the left, for those of you who've been on holiday in the sunshine, that is Bermuda. That is downtown Hamilton, Bermuda. Uh, they have a reinsurance conference once a year uh, where everybody goes, goes down there. Uh, it's 27 degrees, 24 hours a day. Uh, they make quite nice cocktails. You can go boat cruises. And then you have a couple of meetings with uh, all the reinsurers in the world. Uh, we, we had a, a slightly problematic client a little while ago who said, um, if you heard the Panama Papers uh, issued a little while ago, they said, as an organization, they don't want to contract with an entity that has a company in Bermuda. So we looked through every single decent counterparty in the world. Everybody has a company in Bermuda. 
So we had to narrow it down with this client to say, okay, uh, the company you deal with, you mustn't be dealing with the Bermudan entity, and you don't want to deal with a company that is Bermuda-owned, the holding company is not in Bermuda, but other than that, you're okay. Yes, okay. Then we can find them a counterparty. Um, Bermuda is where everybody has a, has a setup. Uh, from, from my company's point of view, we actually run 12 reinsurers there. We do the actual running it on the ground, the finance function, the risk function, all those sort of things. Um, and that is where the business is going. Um, there are asset management, asset management companies around the world that have a great appetite to get hold of insurance assets. They're sticky, they're long duration, you can mismatch duration a bit and you're not going to bring down the financial system. So it's a fantastic place to have sticky assets that you can manage, typically with some sort of credit portfolio that, that, that you can run uh, to make an extra yield. And they do it through Bermuda. It was Cayman, it was Bahamas, uh, it's now Bermuda. Uh, on the right-hand side there, of course, we have Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland is not Solvency II. Switzerland have their own uh, regime. The stresses and the way it's run is slightly different to Solvency II. So there are one or two of the big reinsurance counterparts in the world that actually write the stuff from their Swiss entity, not from their European entity. Uh, because it is a bigger balance sheet with different stresses uh, that they can manage the risk better, they can have better diversification. Um, so you get this nature, uh, the, the, the concept coming in there, of course, is the third country equivalent. Uh, SAM uh, and the legislation, the PA have said, third country equivalent, here's the list of all the countries. All the countries that you really want to deal with are there, uh, and therefore this global set of capital that is looking for business, looking for assets, looking for risks to take, is available to the South African companies. Um, and the lesson there is what the companies have done is they've completely redefined who they are, what business they write, what they think of their existing policyholders, and what they want to do in the future because of the Solvency II capital requirements. That is what has driven the process. So that is the next stage uh, of this wave that's, that's flowing through. How's time? Um, okay, so let's finish off then back to our, our balance sheet. Uh, I haven't talked about transitional arrangements in Europe. Um, you can ask questions about that. I've talked a little bit about the volatility adjustment and the, and the matching adjustment. But if we go back to this balance sheet, so the order that people have gone through their thinking, the first thing is they sit there and say, I have this market value of assets. That gives me volatility. It gives me conservative investment mandate. They then look at the SERs and say, I don't like having this big SER that I never had before. I need to get rid of it. Then they get a little bit more sophisticated and they say, well, it's, it's, the risk margin is also potentially a problem in the same way that an SCR is a problem. It's seen as excessive capital. Um, so let's get rid of it. And then they dive into the best estimate liability of the different portfolios they have and say, which one of these do I want? Which one of these do I not want? Um, and the real message behind all of this is it, it's actually a holistic balance sheet. You actually have to sit there and say, let me look at my whole balance sheet now. Let me look at what business I want to sell in the future. Let me look at what, I, what connection I have with my current policyholders, and then redesign the balance sheet. So it has to be a balance sheet-wide, policyholder-wide, risk management-wide view. And then step into the detail and say, okay, how do we do the macro fixes before we do the micro fixes? Uh, and the issue that we're having now is the problems we solved in 2016, because they were urgent and desperate and, 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 and naive and, and basic, are now, oh, we actually need to reverse that now. We actually, that wasn't the optimum solution. We actually want to do something else now. 
uh, and the question we get and the, and the terms and conditions we put into contracts are, if the sedent wants to get out of this, let's give them option to get out of it because they're going to want to do something else in not, not too distant future, despite the fact that we're talking about 40, 50 year uh, liabilities. Um, and I think that is probably my time up. Um, what is the next wave of disruption going to be? Well, IFRS 17. We all love that. Colin, thank you for sharing your insights. I think in the interest of time, we can do a couple of questions at the end of the session. Um, we're rather going to move to the next talk. Idelia is going to talk about managing capital for shareholder value. She recently returned home from Germany. I think inspired by Jeremy's speech yesterday afternoon, just how nice South Africa is. She tells me in her free time she enjoys salsa dancing and cooking, which I yeah, both are very big in Germany. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming her to the stage as well.